I never stop being amazed by how simultaneously cruel and beautiful this world can be. Nina Riggs Prologue The Life I Loved I loved my life. It was hectic at times, but I relished in the discipline it took to work two jobs, attend college classes, pose for modeling gigs, and most importantly, work out every day. Exercise was my fun, my playtime, the chance for me to drown out everything and get wild. But I also saw it as my path to fame and fortune. Surely one day I would be a famous fitness personality on the cover of every muscle magazine. I became obsessed with working out. I'd skip class and my other commitments, even go without adequate food or sleep, but I never missed a workout. While my friends were off studying in the library or partying at nightclubs, I was at the gym, my clothes drenched in sweat. Exercise was so embedded in my life, so ingrained in my daily routine, it was like breathing. I couldn't live without it. Most days I woke up at five in the morning, down to protein shake and caffeine pill, then, at 6.30, I led a class of exercisers in an hour-long, heart-pumping, sweat-inducing, high-intensity anaerobic workout routine. When the class was finished, the floor was covered with sweat and exhausted bodies. But my day was just beginning. From there, I went to Sonoma State University, where I spent the next several hours sitting through lectures. An average student, I did just enough to pass my courses. And if I had an opportunity, I snuck in a nap in the back of the lecture hall. When my academic classes were done, the real fun began. I'd hit the gym for three hours of heavy weightlifting, tossing 90-pound dumbbells around the weight room as if they were pillows. And I'd finish the workout ready to take on the next challenge of my day. Then I'd down a second protein shake and caffeine pill as I raced off to teach another group fitness class in the evening. I'd finish the class and on my way home, make a final stop at the gym for an hour of high-intensity interval training on the treadmill. Finally, after all the calories were burned and all the sweat had hit the floor, I chugged one last protein shake and tried to sleep a few hours before I woke up and did it all over again. Now, nine years later, my life is very different. I often try but fail to wrap my head around the stark contrast. The fact that I've tried, really tried, to walk on my own. But every time I put my feet on the ground, my muscles give out at the slightest bearing of weight. I used to lift hundreds of pounds. Now I'm too weak to hold a water glass. And I have to type these words on a smartphone because my laptop is too heavy. But these are just some of the obstacles I've encountered. I was in a traumatic car accident that left me haunted by sinister images of broken windshields and burning bodies. Then, a year and a half later, I contracted myalgic encephalomyelitis, the disease that has stolen my ability to walk, talk, and eat solid food. I've witnessed my health steadily crumble over the last decade, but it's still hard for me to imagine how a fit, active, seemingly healthy person in the prime of life can be reduced to such profound debilitation. Perhaps that's why I can't seem to reconcile my past self with my present self, why I'm still waiting to get my life back, still waiting to wake up tomorrow and resume everything that I was doing before I got sick. I can't help but wonder whether I'm any semblance of the person I used to be. The same person who was healthy enough to go on road trips and see movies with friends. The same person who loved life so intensely that sleep was an inconvenience. 
The same person who cared about working out more than anything else. The same person who used to throw weights around the gym then wake up at five in the morning to teach group fitness classes. Am I still that person? Do I even want to be that person anymore? These questions are hard to ask and even harder to answer, but they've shown me a lot about myself and the obstacles I've faced. As much as I wish I could have steered my fate away from the obstacles in my path, I can't ignore the fact that they've made me who I am. It's because of them that I became a writer. This book only exists because I lived through a tragic car accident and a devastating illness. These obstacles have made me wiser and more self-aware. They've shown me the wisdom of my mortality, that nobody is invincible, not even a young, healthy person who works out every day. I also can't ignore that the obstacles are always waiting on the horizon, as is any potential danger, but like an inexperienced pilot flying low over foggy terrain, I hadn't yet learned how to avoid them. Then, before I knew it, they were right in front of me, and I had no choice but to crash head on. Year Zero Coping with Trauma Chapter 1 The Crash June 13th, 2009 The wind on the Napa River Bridge feels like thumbtacks poking my face. I lean over the side and peer down at the current slowly flowing under me, my arms clinging to the railing like a child on an inner tube floating in the water below. The water is calm and peaceful, the opposite of how I feel inside. My body surges with adrenaline, as if I've just chugged five cups of coffee. All I can think about is what it would feel like to jump. Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. Maybe, just for a second, it would feel like drifting through outer space. It's a thought as scary as it sounds, and one I shouldn't entertain for long because surviving such a fall, like the kid who jumped headfirst off the Golden Gate Bridge and broke his back, would be the most agonizing experience of my life. That is, except for what has just happened. I turn away from the water and the thumbtacks, my blurry vision darting across the concrete shoulder, and then I see it. What I'd hoped wouldn't be there. What I'd hoped I had imagined. The wreckage and the short trail of tire marks leading up to it. Fifteen gallons of gasoline is spewing from my forerunner's ripped fuel line, a deluge running down the bridge. The other car is most frightening, a blooming inferno, mere feet from the stream of gas. All at once, I'm in a haze, trying to remember how I got here. After filling my car with gas just off Highway 4 in Martinez, I drove up coming Skyway, jerking my head for glimpses of the water and the bridge in the distance. I was messing with the radio, trying to find a good song on one of my favorite stations. Frustrated with the selection, I pulled out my phone to connect it to the auxiliary cord attached to the stereo. I was distracted, with one hand on the wheel and one hand on my phone, reaching for the cord. It was dangerous, but I was invincible, or maybe just invulnerable, oblivious to the fragility of my mortality. Finally, I connected the auxiliary cord. And with one tap of my phone, the perfect song, Undiscovered by James Morrison, hummed through the speakers. 
It felt inspirational, as if I was in a movie montage synced to my favorite playlist. I was driving, or what felt like floating, across the Carquinez Strait, through Vallejo, and up to Highway 37, with what seemed like a fun evening ahead. A fun evening was not ahead, but the Napa River Bridge was. The incline of the bridge created a dangerous illusion, leaving a blind spot a few car lengths in front of me. It was, on this day, more dangerous than trying to connect my phone to an auxiliary cord while driving. I drove up the arching bridge, expecting to make it to the other side like any other driver, but at the top, a spot of which I hadn't seen, a car had stopped in my lane. Never in my life has so much happened in so few seconds. There was the throttle, the brake, the crash, the flames, the explosion, then the sizzling sound. It's a familiar sound. You could spend your entire life hearing it. An overcooked piece of meat in the oven, a flaming marshmallow in a campfire. But once you associate it with burning human flesh, it changes you. I gape at the flaming car its small frame engulfed by a giant, billowing cloud of thick, black smoke. Every few seconds, a strong breeze whips up and blows away a patch of smoke, revealing the charred, almost molten metallic exterior of the car and the interior, a dark, shadowy tomb of helplessness and death. I'm in shock, utterly paralyzed, afraid to move, scared that anything I do will cause further damage that if I take another step, or so much as breathe the wrong way, I will end someone else's life. A middle-aged man runs up to me on the bridge. He's out of breath and looks as disturbed as I feel. Someone's trapped in there! He points to the burning car, then frantically looks over at my forerunner. The driver's door is wide open and the front end looks like a folded-up accordion. Where's the other driver? I am the other driver. My voice is hoarse like I've been yelling, but I haven't said a word until now. That's your car? The man asks, gesturing to my totaled forerunner. I nod, and he looks at me worriedly. Are you okay? I think so. You're not okay. Look at your car, he says. You should sit down. An ambulance will be here soon. In search of comfort, I retreat to my spot on the bridge railing. But there's no comfort there, nor anywhere. Not even the vast, calm marsh in the background can soothe the turbulence of this moment. I feel empty, like I've lost something, something priceless. What innocence I had is gone now that I've seen the destruction that can happen to a person. How a body and the life it holds can be destroyed so quickly and so violently. On the road behind me, cars have stopped, drivers and passengers watching in awe some holding up their phones, taking pictures of the giant fireball beside me. I want them to go away. Or better, I want to go back in time, rewind to an hour ago and just stay there. Then I wouldn't have to think about all the things that could have diverted my fate away from this moment. A phone call, a stoplight, a bathroom break, and the one failed diversion that haunts me most, a soy corn dog. Before I left, I had passed on an offer from David, my friend Ian's dad, to enjoy the meatless snack. Hey, how about a corn dog before you go? He'd asked. They're almost ready. No, thanks. I gotta get going. I have tickets to the Giants game and need to stop at home first. Okay, 
Maybe next time, David had replied. I smiled and nodded, then asked, Why do you eat soy corn dogs instead of the real ones? I like them, he said. I should have stayed. I like them too. It wasn't 24 hours earlier that David and I had shared an almost identical conversation, except then I had stopped to relax and eat. It was a small, yet fateful part of an enjoyable weekend reconnecting with friends. But now it seems so long ago, like a story from a bygone era. Under the railing, there's a small gap of air before the bridge turns to concrete. Wispy clouds float above, shading me from the sun while I crouch down and rest my forehead on the cold metal railing, my chin on the grainy concrete. It's the closest thing to a hiding spot that I can find, a slice of shelter away from the thumbtacks and the mayhem surrounding me. I take my phone out of my jeans and call my mom. She doesn't answer. I keep calling, then remember that she's off on a camping trip away from cell phone service. I try my dad. He won't be here for several hours. I call David and Ian. They'll meet me at the hospital. I put my phone away and look up to see an ambulance and a fire truck zigzagging through traffic on the bridge. Once they arrive, the firefighters get to work, putting out the flames on the other car. Some of them appear detached, apathetic even, and without a trace of compassion, while others seem sympathetic but are more puzzled than worried. The highway patrol officers are also on the scene, and, after a lead from a witness, home in on me with both fervor and confusion. One of them tests my motor skills to see if I'm drunk in the middle of the day. Hard to blame him. It's his job. Finally, he clears me to leave, and I get into the ambulance. On the ride to the hospital, the paramedic is sincere, but not as comforting as a friend. We arrive at the hospital. Solano's something... Remembering the name of a hospital is like trying to remember the name of a street in the desert. They all look the same, and you're too focused on getting the hell out of there to care. After stepping out of the ambulance, I walk into the emergency room without help, looking healthier than the nurse waiting to put me on a gurney. Once I'm settled, an ER doctor takes a seat next to me. He's a confident man, probably in his early 40s, with gray hair and dark bags under his eyes. Jameson, like the whiskey. The doctor asks, looking at my name on a form. No, I say. My name is spelled with an I, not an E. Looks like they got it wrong on your form. It happens a lot. I'll fix it for you in a bit. He smiles at me. We have some juice and crackers coming for you. That's all there is at the moment. Thanks, I say. So, Jameson, you have an abrasion on your forehead. How do you feel? Any dizziness or pain in the rest of your body? The doctor asks. No, I'm fine, I say. The truth is that I don't know if I'm fine. I'm still in shock, too jacked up on adrenaline to know whether I'm okay. There could be a gaping wound in my head and I probably wouldn't feel it. Well, you can thank your airbag for that, the doctor says. I didn't have one. The doctor looks surprised. Oh, well... That's miraculous for such a serious accident. He glances down at his clipboard. Okay, so we're going to keep you for a couple hours just to make sure you don't have anything serious going on. Now, I know it may not be the same, but I have some idea of what you're going through. I was in a pretty bad car accident myself. I woke up in the hospital with a broken jaw, 
concussion and a bunch of shattered bones. Oh, I mumble, staring off in the distance. I wish I had woken up in the hospital instead of witnessing the horrors of this car accident. Who knows why people like you and me are spared? It could be to finish what we started in life, or it could just be plain luck. I'll bet you don't have the slightest idea why this happened, or maybe it doesn't matter to you. But I bet at least part of you is wondering why you're still alive. Remarkably so, and why the other guy isn't. It's all yours to sort out, or not. Your choice. The doctor continues, leaning forward in his chair and resting his elbows on the gurney. But Jameson, if you're anything like me, there's a good chance you're going to get so frustrated trying to make sense of all the bad things that happen in your life, especially this, that you may want to give up. Maybe you already do. But if you're as smart as you seem, in that moment, everything will make as much sense as it needs to. The doctor rubs his face, a red gloss coating his tired, sincere eyes. Talking to him makes me realize something. Crashing into that car on the bridge was incredibly unlucky. But of all the people fate brings to this hospital, I am one of the lucky ones. I get to go home. My life will go on. The doctor pats my leg, gets up, and walks away. He comes back a few minutes later, delicately places his hand on my wrist, and attaches a laminated hospital bracelet, which, thanks to him, has the correct spelling of my name. I got you taken care of, he says. It's a small but meaningful gesture, knowing that this doctor has an idea of what I'm going through and cares enough to spell my name right brings me some peace. He may not be able to take away my pain, but he doesn't have to. Having someone here who empathizes with me is enough. <laughs>